listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. One morning in May, Megan Hillico was getting her family ready to go camping for the holiday weekend. Her two boys had been up for a while when she noticed that her 15-month-old daughter, Aria, seemed to be sleeping later than usual. Going to check on her, as she had done so many times for all of her children, Megan could tell that something was very, very wrong. Aria had died in her sleep of SUDC, Sudden Unexplained Death in Childhood. SUDC is the term for when a child over the age of one dies, most often in their sleep, and there's no identifiable cause. For those of us who've experienced a sudden death, we're familiar with how the world radically changes in an instant. Everything we knew to be true and real tilts on its axis. For Megan, the death of her little princess, Aria, flooded her with grief, and with that grief came panic, shock, and other symptoms that would eventually lead to the diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Megan sought out therapy to address these debilitating symptoms. She also started a blog and created a website as a way to tell her story and connect with other grieving parents. There's no cure or fix for grief, and many grieving people say they wouldn't want one even if it did exist, because their grief serves as a connection to their people who have died. Knowing this, Megan's goal is less about eradicating grief and more about learning how to live in the middle. The middle where there's the intersection of the pain of Aria's death and the joy of remaining engaged with life. Megan, I'm really glad you're able to join me today for this conversation. I am so glad to be here. Your daughter Aria was 15 months old when she died. How do you describe her to other people? Um, she, we called her our princess. She was so happy and smiley all the time. That was like the comments we got from everybody all the time that she was so smiley that I ne- like, I never got frustrated at her. She was still young enough where anything that, like, I never had any feelings of like anger towards her because she was still a baby and she was so smiley, content and cute all the time. And I, I like, I'm really grateful for that. And as a non-parent, is that much smiley, easygoing, contentedness, is that unique in a child that age? I don't know. It depends. Like each of our kids, so we have six children and they're all different. And so I feel like Aria was extra smiley and content compared to our other children, but it totally depends on each child. Not all my children have been that same way. And speaking of other children, it seems like one of the toughest questions for grieving parents and caregivers to answer is that really common one of how many kids do you have? What's your relationship to that question? Um, It's a very hard question to answer. You know, you would think after three and a half years that I have it all figured out. I know exactly how I'm going to (laughs) answer every time. But 
right away, you know, when she died, I was like, I feel bad not listing her, you know, as part of my children. Like if somebody were to ask, I was like, well, I have to tell. And my husband, Justin had a different, you know, he didn't tell he, and I just didn't get it. I was like, why in the world don't you tell people that we had a daughter? And I started to get too many like horrible responses. And so then I decided that like, it just depends on the moment, depends on the person that if they do, I feel like telling them, do I feel like talking about this with them? Not every person has the honor or privilege to know my story. In the past, I would have felt really guilty about that, not including her, but I know that I'm including her. And I know that telling somebody about her or not does not mean that she is not fully loved by me and by our family in our hearts. So it just totally depends on the person and the situation and if I want to tell them or not. Yeah, it's like it shifted over time and that before it felt like such a necessity. I'm honoring Aria by saying this to this person, no matter who they are, or what my relationship is. And then over time, it's been, wait a minute, I, I get to have a choice about this and I can, I can honor her, but also not put myself in at risk of encountering a reaction that's not supportive. Yeah, it's definitely a different, different relationship with the question. In terms of how people responded, is, do you have a, an example of a, a way that someone responded that you were like, ooh, maybe I'm going to stop telling people. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to remember, like, it, it's just if people have a bad response. And what I mean by like a bad response is that you tell them something very intimate and deep to your life. And then they're just like, their response is not empathetic. And then sometimes you don't want that, that pity from people mm, too. Mm-hmm. And I think people think they're trying to like be support, like they don't know what to do or they, that you can tell that they wish that they didn't ask or I feel like it's a little bit awkward for everybody sometimes. Awkward seems to be the go-to word for all the kids and the teens at the Dougie Center. So we talk about like, how do people or something like, if people just get really awkward, uh, what, what's a response that someone gave that did feel really connecting or empathetic? I'd have to think about that. I think just when they have like given me a hug or like didn't get awkward, they were just like comfy with it and like maybe asked me more questions or, you know, said, I'm sorry. And not, I'm sorry, like, oh, I'm sorry I asked that question, but like really genuinely saying that you Mm. can, they could say the same words, but act differently. So it's like their physical reaction, their bodily reaction, what they say and how they they carry themselves when they say it. So it's so many different layers, but like when they, when you can tell that they're not, they're not scared of your answer. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot lately where, you know, people ask, what do I say? What do I not say? And, and sometimes I'm like, you kind of have to back it up away from the actual words to the general orientation you're bringing to that interaction. And that orientation might be I am not afraid of your story. I can withstand this intensity. I'm honored you shared with me. So bringing that intention to the interaction means more, I think, sometimes than the specific words that get said. Oh, totally. I totally agree with that. That's a very good way to put it. Another thing that you wrote in your blog that really caught my attention was this idea of growing your life bigger around your grief. What does that phrase mean to you? So if you think about grief, when you're when you have an outside perspective, you kind of think that people should get over grief, move on, forget 
why are you being stuck in the past? But when you are grieving, it's important to know that grief is going to be there. And so if you imagine like a circle with grief in it, so there's another circle of grief within the circle of your life and grief right away takes up your whole entire life. It takes up every thought in your brain, every energy that you can even try to have. It's all covered with grief your whole life. And if you can work at building your life bigger around grief, because grief doesn't really disappear, it's always there. And I don't want to say that in a way where people are like, oh my goodness, you know, if you're newly grieving, that I'm going to feel this way the rest of my life. No, it doesn't have to be that way. If you can build your life bigger around that grief, it's still there. It's still a real part of your experience in your life and it comes and goes and it's not going to go away. But if you can build if you build experiences and you grow your life around your grief, there's a lot of room for joy where grief isn't taking up all of your space in your life. Finding experiences or community or people that can support you and help you and finding maybe finding a way to give back to other people or finding a way to remember your child and honor them, like just different things like that where you can build your life around this experience. I'm sitting with your description of it and lots of other visuals are coming to mind and none of them are sticking, so I'm not going to pick one. (laughs) But I'm really intrigued by this. Again, I go back to that idea of bringing a certain orientation to interacting with people who are grieving, but also bringing a certain orientation to our own grief and that the initial response can be, here's this thing that has come into my life. It is taking over every part of my life. How do I get rid of it? How do I make it smaller? How do I remove it from my life? And it sounds like what you're saying is less about trying to change the grief and then more about build out the other parts of your life so that there is more balance and room for life and grief to coexist. Yeah, totally. Because I think we, nobody likes to feel grief. It's, it's really painful. It's not fun. It's depressing. It's sad. And the reason why you're grieving is horrible. But I think grief is just that love for that person. And and for me, it's been three years and I don't want to stop grieving because that, that to me, if I stopped grieving, it would mean I've forgotten Aria Mm. and I want to remember her. And I want, like when I grieve now, when my grief comes up, I like embrace it because I'm like, oh yeah, I do. I was, you know, I was that mother to that 15 month old girl and I still am and I still love her and I still remember her in many ways. And so I like welcome that and grief can be like a full part of your life and your existence. And it doesn't mean that you're, you're in that grief hole or the depression of grief or any of those extreme emotions with grief or the very heavy emotions with grief. It doesn't mean you're in that all the time. It just means that grief is a part of who you are. Yeah, and I think about how there can be this element of, of grief being a connection of to the person and to the love or the ambivalence or any other emotion we may have had related to that relationship. And then there are the elements of grief that can be directly related to the death itself and to the tragedy of that. And, and you were the one that opened the door to Aria's room and and discovered that she had died. And you've written a lot about what it's like to live with those sensory memories of what you saw and what you heard. How, how did the trauma of that show up in your day-to-day life? 
<laughs> everywhere. <laughs> it was pretty debilitating. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Many people think that PTSD is only for soldiers, but I actually believe that many people live with PTSD. I think there's a lot of trauma that goes unrecognized and unsupported. My PTSD was very, um, my triggers were sleeping children because Aria died in the night and I went to check on her while she was sleeping. So for me, I had a baby four weeks after Aria died. I think that just accentuated my PTSD because now I had a newborn who, you know, I had to check on her all the time. Like I couldn't survive day to day without my husband or my parents or somebody else checking on my kids all the time. And so that felt like I couldn't be the mom that I wanted to be because I couldn't, my body would not calm down to a point where like I could just let them be. I had to check on them every five minutes when they were sleeping. It's so difficult to describe PTSD if you don't understand it. You have no control over your bodily response. This is like an example. I would go check on her and I, in my brain, I would know she was gone. And then before I would check on her, so I'd go downstairs and maybe do the laundry and she's upstairs. And I couldn't even handle five minutes down there before I had to run back upstairs and my heart's pounding and I'm sweating and I'm shaking and I need to like go check on her, make sure she's fine. And I need to feel her belly and make sure she's breathing. And it was like a constant state of stress where I'm constantly reliving the trauma over and over and over again. And it's not a matter of just telling your body, oh, it's fine. You can't do that. It, you can't calm down because your brain doesn't realize that it can calm down. You can't logic your way. No, you can't logic at all. And I did um, EMDR for it. And listeners, EMDR stands for uh, rapid eye movement desensitization. I cannot say it. Do you know how to say it? Yeah, it's it stands for eye movement desensitization. <laughs> All right, neither one of I us can, can do say it. it. Yeah, no, I can do it. <laughs> it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Thank you. You win the yeah. articulation award today. <laughs> I've had to say it so many times, and I'm like, it is kind of a hard word to say. <laughs> but it's definitely like it's a way of rebuilding the connections in your brain. So many times when you have PTSD, you feel broken. I felt really broken, like there's something wrong with me, and I'm how do I fix this? I don't know how to heal or you know live with this. But you can rebuild those pathways in your brain so your body can file that memory of that trauma as like a past experience. So it's not reoccurring over and over and over again. And it has been incredible for me. And the more I've learned about trauma and stuff, I, the more like EMDR is not the only option. There's so many different ways of begin, beginning to connect with your body and the trauma that you're feeling in your body and understand where those are coming from and then how to integrate them into your life. So the actual intervention was helpful, but it sounds like also just better understanding what's going on. Like, why is my body responding as though it's the moment that Aria died over and over and over again? Oh, for sure. And it's important to acknowledge that your body is responding like your body did what it was supposed to do from there you can have compassion with yourself that okay now how do we how do we work through this and heal because healing is possible so many people think with ptsd that or trauma that you can't heal from trauma but i know because i've experienced it myself that 
it is so possible and living with that is I told people it was eating me alive like the stress in my chest was going to kill me and now like I don't live with that anymore Megan looking back for you as you were coming to that place of recognizing like I can be grieving Aria and I can be connected to my joy and love for her and I need some outside help for the way my body is processing this experience. What obstacles stood in the way for you to be accessing additional support and help? Um, You know, I was really, really blessed. I had a really, really supportive friends community. I like, I can't even... (laughs) thank them enough and my family and my church group. Like I, I had so much support. I don't really feel like there were that many obstacles for me because I had so much help and support and they just really stepped up and took care of my kids so I could go to therapy. And so I could focus on taking care of myself and healing my brain and doing the work I needed to do so that I could be the mom that I like really wanted to be again. And in your role as a mom, how did grief show up for your other children about their sister's death? And and what have you learned from them about how kids grieve? Yeah, I really learned a lot. My oldest was four, I think, when Aria died, and the next one was two and a half. I've learned that they, they have different levels of understanding, you know, as they get older, that they might, their grief will change again. As they get older, they start to understand more that like she's gone forever and that she's not coming back. And so then they have a different level of grieving. I, I really want to have the space for them to talk, to process, to say anything, even if it's painful for me to listen to. But another thing to remember is that kids make everything about themselves. And so if we don't communicate with them what happened or in, you know, in a way that they can understand we're not open with them. If we just try to hide it, they're so smart. They understand so much more than you think. And they, they will make it about themselves if you don't tell them what's going on. My son kind of all of a sudden was telling me that he went and he found Aria. And I was like, whoa, like, what do I do with this? Like he said, I told him to go check on Aria and he found her. I wasn't sure how I'm supposed to navigate this. Like, do I, do I just let him think that he did and process it with him? Or do I tell him, no, actually mom found him, you know, like they make up these things in their head that unless they communicate them with you, you have no idea. Yeah. It's so interesting. That idea of kids feeling, you know, this is such an out of control experience for them. They had no input. They had no just as it is for the adults in their life too, and trying to find those little ways that maybe they were involved or did have some agency or did have a role in it. In your grief, you made the decision to be really public. You know, you turned to sharing your stories online uh, in your blog and your website. You wrote an ebook called How to Help a Grieving Friend. In being so public, what have you learned from other grieving parents? Yeah, I've learned a lot and it's been definitely a different perspective for me to share in a way of like trying to support and help others versus just grieving my own grief. It takes, it has taken me a lot of like thought and learning and working to figure out like how, how can I be a support of somebody else? Because everybody's grief journey is so different. But 
I have learned a lot of, there are a lot of similarities in grief, even though we might all respond differently. I definitely don't think I could have done it any sooner than I have. I think I was too fragile and I didn't have the energy for it. I didn't have the capacity. And now as I've had more capacity and I felt more of the being able to mix grief and joy together in my life, now I know how to support someone else. There really is just a lot of loneliness amongst grieving moms and in grief in general, grief is just a pretty lonely journey. I just really want people to know that they're not alone. And I don't know what else have I learned from them. I feel like I've learned a lot. There's a lot of hopelessness and that's something I'm trying to hold the light of hope for people that your story isn't over. Your life isn't over. And at that same time, when I say that, that like there is room for your grief, that your grief isn't scary. Your grief isn't, your story is important and you matter. It seems like you're really in this place of helping people break down that dichotomy of you're either grieving with no joy and not engaging in life, or you are not grieving anymore at all. And now you get joy and you get to engage in your life. And it seems like you're helping people see that there's a way to mix those things together. Yeah. Cause I think it's really important because then you, you don't really want to find joy. If you think that that means you're forgetting your child, you don't really want to reach for happiness after loss. If you think that means that your child didn't exist, but if you can understand that living doesn't mean that you're going to stop grieving it maybe you can start to take steps forward into meshing grief with your life what are the little day-to-day ways that you stay connected to aria we have a lot of things in our house when i look around i'm like oh we actually do have quite a few things that are meant to remind us of her like little angel statues or i made a book about her but I would say we we actually talk about her a lot as a family and my daughter who never got to meet her sister brings her up a lot which means a lot it's it's really like it's so sad at the same time and I love hearing her talk about her too we just always especially as a family it might it, it might change as time goes on and people kind of move forward with their own lives and they don't realize that child loss and grief is forever for us. It, I think it's a transition that is, is kind of a normal thing and I know it's going to be painful for us and it's something that I am kind of bracing myself for. And that you know that you can feel okay and carrying that grief for yourself and continuing to talk about Aria. Yes, for sure. So for our listeners out there who want to connect more with you, learn more about your work, learn more about your story, what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, they can find me at meganhillica.com. That's my name. And then I'm also on Instagram, the cultivated family or just cultivated family. And I have a podcast called the cultivated family podcast. So you can find me on there anywhere. I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So you can message me on there if you want to say hi. And I love to connect with people and support you in any way I can. Well, and listeners, in case you uh, don't know intuitively how to spell Megan's last name, (laughs) (laughs) it's H-I-L-L-U-K-K 
A, and I will also list that in the show notes if you don't have anything that you're scribbling to write that down with right now. (laughs) Well, Megan, I just want to thank you again for, you know, making a difference in the lives of other grieving parents and reaching out to me at Grief Out Loud and being willing to talk with me and our listeners today. Yeah, thank you for having me on and thank you for the work that you're doing as well. And listeners out there, thank you for tuning in, because without you, it would just be Megan and I talking to ourselves. (laughs) So we really appreciate you being out there. And I want to thank those of you who have reached out to me directly to talk about what the show means to you. And I encourage you to do more of that. I love hearing from listeners. So you can reach out to me at help at Dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And I just, yeah, I'd love to hear what do you think of the show? What are the episodes that mean the most? to you what are the topics we're not talking about that you want to hear more about and whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener if you feel at all drawn to supporting our work because we are produced by the Dougie Center in Portland Oregon which is a nonprofit organization we're 100 community funded so if you'd like to be part of that community you can go online to uh, dougy.org forward slash grief out loud there is a large blue button it says donate now and you can click that and uh, support our show so thanks for listening hope you'll join us again next time